it was a fascinating experience for me the first time around when, you know, even just picking like personal website projects, sticking in a screen reader and realizing it totally doesn't work. People with disabilities, it's easy to see them as them versus us, but it's so much about inclusion. I think it's helpful for us to kind of talk about what's difficult about doing these things online. For many years, advocates for accessibility have pushed for accessibility to be included from the get-go in the production process, in the construction of websites, in the construction of content. What the Department of Justice has done in pursuing ADA lawsuits is to say, you have a problem, you could have fixed it, you haven't. Now there's going to be consequences. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the Demux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS, the open source video player. And I'm Phil, the director of Media Technologies Engineering at Brightcove, previously building BBC iPlayer in London. And you're listening to Demuxed, a podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demux is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demuxed. Hey everybody, welcome to Demuxed. If you've been paying attention recently, you've probably seen some news about UC Berkeley and their free online course content potentially going away. So today we want to talk about what's going on, what's the news, what we see as like larger trends here, and what we can take away as people working in the video industry. So to really help us dig in here, we've got Owen Edwards from the SSB Bark Group, and we've known Owen for a while here as a contributor to VideoJS, a world-renowned Demux speaker, and, and amongst other things, just kind of generally an all-around great dude with a, a lot of background in accessibility. So do you want to tell us a little about your background, Owen? Sure. I started out in engineering uh, in the Bay Area during the big dot-com boom the first time around and decided to take a break from that for a little while and go and spend some time in the mountains. I went out to Colorado to teach snowboarding and fell in with an adaptive program there where I got to see the effect that inclusion of people with disabilities has on not just them, but on everybody. The idea of standing next to somebody who's blind, who's about to go down a black run, the idea of a young man in a sitski who's lost his legs in combat being challenged to a race by a 60-year-old who lost his legs 40 years ago just changes your whole perspective. And so that idea of People with disabilities are just, it's easy to see them as, as them versus us, or a group, and then people who are able-bodied. But it's so much about inclusion, it's so much about universal design, about bringing people in who, the challenge of designing a system that works for people with disabilities just broadens our ability to make systems that work for everybody. So... Since then, I, as you mentioned, work at SSB Bark Group. We do accessibility testing, auditing, and consulting for online digital products, both software, web content, documents, and help people comply with the various regulations. Great. If you haven't seen it yet, by the way, his talk from Demuxed 2015 is really great. It ends with a plea that'll have you cutting onions in the kitchen. But um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to start off really quickly by like, talking about kind of the background here before we dive into what's going on at UC Berkeley. And, and by the way, this isn't the first time that this kind of free course content and accessibility has made the news. Uh, Harvard and MIT had a similar thing happen in 2015. But I, I think it's helpful for us to kind of talk about why this is a problem, like what's difficult about doing these things online, and what makes it a challenge to make things accessible online. So I guess let's start off with captions. 
what is a caption? What is a subtitle? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that was a question early on that was kind of the answer eluded me for a long time. But the way I understand it now, and so you can correct me if I'm wrong, Owen, but captions are specifically for the hard of hearing, where subtitles are for translations into other languages. Is that right? Generally speaking, yep, that's right. Okay. It depends where you're speaking from. If you're in England, they use the terminology differently. So things are subtitles and subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing. The term captions isn't really used. Mm. But over here, you're right. Captions are specifically targeted at people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Subtitles are usually a translation. Okay, that's interesting to know. That's that's U.S. specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in general, captions are they've been kind of a challenge on the web. At least, you know, they they first started. You had them in Flash to mm-hmm. a degree, right? They've never been really prominent everywhere, but you started to have them in Flash. Then when HTML5 video came along, we got a new format called WebVTT, and that kind of helped captions push forward. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's kind of a general challenge around just like creating the captions, making sure they're available. Like any thoughts on you know, the complexities there around actually making captions available? I think part of the complexity comes from, as with any technology, the multiple different standards. Hmm. There were various different standards, and as you mentioned, um, one of them, SRT, kind of evolved into Web VTT, hmm. which is a relatively simple text format and gives very easy editing. But there's also content coming from, say, DVD, which is much more of a bitmapped image, hmm. and then broadcast standards, which are much more complex. And so translating, transcoding between them causes complexity. And I think that's caused a lot of the problems. The Flash players tended to support some of the more basic formats, like SRT and uh, time text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of this is also, I mean, we'll go into more like the rules around once you take broadcast content mm-hmm. and try to put it online. But you know, WebVTT is kind of what I've always known as a Getting started with VideoJS and and working with online video, honestly, that's that's the primary thing that I've ever worked with has been WebVTT. Um, I remember that being like the first topic that I really cut my teeth on at, at FOMS was was talking about WebVTT. But yeah, Phil, can you tell us at all about at the BBC? Did you guys have any specific workflows for transitioning from? I mean, this might have been a little bit after your time with the rulings there. I don't know if they affected the BBC at all, but yeah, what was that like? Yeah, I ended up well in the pain places of of subtitles at the BBC. For a long time, I think I wrote three different subtitling (laughs) delivery systems at the BBC over the years for my sins. I I don't know how it always somehow landed back in my lap. But we we certainly had a lot of challenges around um, bringing in subtitle sources from multiple places. Uh, namely, generally, you come from a broadcast world. You're you're either picking up live subtitles or you're picking up kind of VOD subtitles, like ready produced to, for playout, or you're picking up some live subtitles feed as it goes out live on air. And there's a lot of challenges with each of those. Obviously, they're coming in in very different formats. You know, usually the live subtitles come in as proprietary formats. Men will have to be converted. The BBC, as it happens, was actually not an SRT or a, a Web VTT outfit. It's actually entirely a TTML time text outfit. So whenever you see subtitles from BBC, they've they've come for a time text workflow. But they actually come a lot of the time originally in as a STL, which is probably something no one's ever seen here. <laughs> but it's a very old kind of binary format. 
suddenly a lot of a lot of the workflows we had to build were around, hey, let's take the subtitle file and convert it from A to B to C, hopefully without losing all the information that's in there. Because you know, a lot of the interesting things is there's, there's way more information usually than people ever consider. There's coloring information, there's position information, mm-hmm. there's and and some of this people think, well, as long as you've got the text, what does it matter? Well, it kind of matters if your subtitles are over a critical piece of the content, right? If if your subtitles are being overlaid on top of the question in a quiz show, then your subtitles are useless and they're not <laughs> relevant anymore. So a lot of the time was spent really converting between formats and, and the tool chains we built to do that, you know, varied from Perl scripts that existed for five years through through building uh, custom applications to deal with it, as well as using a lot of open source tools that were out there to to deal with converting subtitles. I think you know by the end of it, we had this tool chain that was, hey, pass this you know incoming file through four tools, and then actually you've got something that might work at the end of it. And maintaining all the, the quality and all the nuances through that is often difficult. There was a there was a point where we realized we had, for example characters that were not generally supported by a lot of the players and one of these was actually the pound sign in the UK so we actually <laughs> ended up realizing that a lot of subtitles didn't have a pound sign incorrectly and the pound sign in this context is a currency not the the hash sign as I would call it in America <laughs> but yeah it, it, a lot of the times there's so much complexity that we can we can lose there yeah I mean like a, an important thing to note here too for for any listeners that maybe haven't dug into the caption subtitles world like an important distinction to make here is the difference between like burned-in captions versus what we're talking about, which are these sidecar formats. So, like a WebVTT file, web video time text. Is that yeah? yeah. Nope. <laughs> <Nailed>. <laughs> uh, uh, the things like uh, WebVTT are these text files, as Owen said earlier, that sit alongside your video. So you deliver these like multiple text tracks. These can be different languages, and they just exist in your. HTML5 player or whatever it is, and then the player then knows how to translate the time codes that are in this text file with with the content. So that's a different level of complexity from the player perspective than say, if you just have the video file itself having captions hard coded. And if you've ever pirated video online, which I'm sure nobody listening ever has, um, and found like hard coded Chinese captions, like that's that's not what we're talking about here. For the most part, we're talking about these sidecar formats that can provide different types of captions for the end user. Yeah, speaking to the the complexity of that. VideoJS was actually the first uh, open source player that supported the WebVTT format, and I was pretty proud of that. But then the spec for WebVTT just started to kind of balloon up and require more and more specific features that we didn't have the ability to keep up with. And at one point, I remember talking to the Opera developers and what they were building in order to support the spec. And essentially, what they were building was an entire collision detection engine <laughs> to understand exactly where subtitles and captions were being overlaid in order to support. Japanese subtitles that might be vertical text and alongside of horizontal text. And it was just like insane to hear what they were having to go through in order to get these things to show up properly. So yeah, it's it's a lot more complex than you might expect at first glance. Right. And of course, subtitles always go left to right, right? They never go right to left. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh no, wait, hang on. <laughs> the, Matt, the specific terms you you are clarifying there is open caption versus closed caption. Right, open caption is ones you can't turn off; they're burnt in. Closed caption was, which is the term most people understand now. They don't realize that's the sidecar format, so you can turn it on or off. So that is the the CC button the on CC. your player. Exactly. Gotcha. 
moving away from just captions itself because that's not that's not the end of accessibility online. It might be interesting just to hear like from a higher level what are the different types of disabilities, right? Like captions are obviously for the hearing impaired, right? But there's there's so many different types of disabilities and I think that was one of the things that surprised me like in talking with people like Owen is like the wide range of potential disabilities that are out there and why we have these different technologies. Right. I mean obviously there's a huge spectrum of different kinds of disabilities and I think a lot of people are particularly around autism starting to understand the concept of spectrum, the concept that a disability is not black and white, it's not on or off. But the major groupings that we look at the most are blindness and low vision, color blindness, which is sometimes surprising that it's considered a disability mm. since it's so common, so broadly um, mm-hmm. experienced. But that can tie in with some low vision issues, some similar low vision, similar effects of low vision. Yeah, what are some specifics around the difference between blind and low vision? Like, what, How sure. does that manifest itself? Sure, and it's, uh, it depends where you're talking in terms of what counts as blind from a disability level is legally blind is actually not completely blind. It's not what people think of as completely blind. Hmm. Um, it's below 2200, so it's not able to drive because they're blind. It's that kind of blindness, as opposed to can't see even light and dark. So you get a lot of gradations of of blindness. There's once you get into, well, can they perceive light and dark? Can you count fingers? If fingers are held up in front of your face, could you could you count those? Hmm. To are actually then testing your acuity. That twenty two hundred versus twenty twenty hmm. that we're so familiar with. And then in low vision, there's all sorts of different things. There can be central vision loss, where there's a small area in the retina that doesn't work. There can be peripheral vision loss. There can be blurring. There can be differences in color perception. There's so many different things. So it, there's a lot of different strategies for coping with that. Hmm. So it, I hadn't really picked up on the colorblindness issues until mm-hmm. I uh, had a coworker that was colorblind. Uh, shout out to Chris Warren in Minneapolis. But there'd be times where I was giving him crap because his color scheme and his text editor was just atrocious. It was the <laughs> ugliest, the ugliest shades of whatever colors were thrown together. And I was like making fun of him for how heinous it was. And he was like. Oh, but I can actually see the difference between these. You're just an asshole. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> well, I, hmm, yes. And so you actually see like what these things mean. Like if, if the only differentiator that you have between two buttons, like the, the button that you should not click and the button that you should click is red and green, and you can't tell the difference between red and green, then your warning versus, you know, let's go signal there is just totally lost. So there's actually some interesting, interesting projects out there that'll help you kind of enable modes in your browsers that'll do low vision testing so you can kind of see what it looks like from the perspective of somebody with you know low vision or, or color blindness or something like that right yeah all the way down to simulating total blindness where it just switches off the screen <laughs> <That's> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> i'd pay for that service <laughs> okay so that's right. the visual ones and then right. and then you move on to the hearing disabilities right. so again there's a range deafness and hard of hearing and so total deafness, obviously, any sound needs to be represented in a different form. Hard of hearing is maybe they have a person who has trouble separating speech from background noise, hmm. um, speech from a soundtrack in a movie, or it might be that they have deafness in one ear. Um, hmm. So for example, the iPhone has a feature where it can reroute all of the audio into one ear or the other, 
rather than splitting it between both. Hmm. So there's areas where it's just, it's again, it's not black and white. It's right. people who have some kind of impairment. How do you deal with that? That's really interesting. Okay, so that's hearing, and then mm-hmm. what is manual? Right, so the other large area is physical disabilities, which affect people's ability to manipulate content, manipulate the devices that allow them to access the content. And particularly it's the mouse we're thinking of. It could be that they're missing limbs. It could be some kind of muscular impairment, something like Parkinson's, cerebral palsy, that just makes coordination very difficult. So it's anything in those areas, all the way through to quadriplegics who may be unable to move any limbs and use some kind of alternative input device, something head-mounted or a sit-puff switch. Hmm. Which allows them to communicate with a computer or control a computer. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, we might be talking about like speech control or something along those lines. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's another big area is speech control. Interesting. Anything not covered in, in those three categories? There certainly are. There are broader um, issues with cognitive and learning disabilities. That's a large one that hasn't really been adequately covered in some of the accessibility. Technologies, but is certainly an area in education. There's a lot of people that are very concerned about how do you keep the attention of somebody with ADD, ADHD? How do you allow somebody to simplify content on a page? I was talking to a friend recently who was talking about somebody with a traumatic brain injury who was saying that websites can be very tough if there's a lot of content on there and they look away. If there's a noise in the house and they look away and they look back, they're totally lost. In a hmm. page. And so, what they're looking for is the ability to simplify a page, to take out the content that isn't strictly necessary. And particularly things that are flashing, that are blinking, that are distracting. Um, Adverts, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, what you're saying is uh, the marquee and blink tags were probably not big losses to the. Uh, to the, to the <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and actually one specific area that is flagged in existing uh, regulations is things that might cause epileptic seizures, particularly flashing content and the specific definitions of what is likely to trigger that. So next episodes of Pokemon spring to mind on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's it. There's certainly a quite a, a wide variety there and it's going to take a, a lot of work to kind of get all of that supported. Right, right. I mean, just to touch on a couple of others, there are areas where it's a combination of disabilities. So people who are deafblind are a, a difficult population to serve, mm-hmm. but they're certainly out there. Often they're braille readers, so they have the tactile reading in braille. So it's where you really have to consider all the different alternative modes of information delivery. <laughs> But one thing I I also always think about when we're talking about those core sets of disabilities, vision, hearing loss, and uh, mobility or coordination loss, is that unfortunately we're all getting older. And <laughs> until we can solve that, we're all going to move towards having less ability. We may not call it disability, but if we don't design a world for the future that we can access... We're going to be the people off on an island somewhere, the old people's <laughs> island. Um, that is a really interesting way to think about it. You know, design the world that we're going to use. <laughs> please, please. I might get there sooner than you guys, but you'll get there eventually. I'm, I'm banking on modern medicine. I'm, uh, uh-huh. I'm going to be 28 forever. So, <laughs> uh, so briefly, let's talk about real quickly through some of these different 
technologies that we we would use as especially you know, focusing on people that are building video experiences on the web, right? Right. And a lot of these are, are things that you know at least Owen, oh, Steve, and I have, have dealt with a lot with VideoJS. In some of these instances, it has been issues on an issue tracker that have spanned quite literally years. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, things like. Um, uh, Flash versus HTML alone. So, like mm-hmm. Steve's very first implementation that he was talking about with caption support was it would see if there was a text track in the player, remove that, parse it in JavaScript, and then display it. The nice thing was that it worked with Flash and HTML5. The problem was when you moved over to iOS, for example, it wouldn't play at all because we'd removed that. Element from the DOM, so because then, because iOS goes to full screen, you yeah. can't overlay any text on top of iOS when it's in full screen. So you're kind of like out of luck there, right? Huh. Or like if the browser actually did support WebVTT as they soon after did, then you would end up like if we left it in there altogether, then you would end up with double captions, which was unfortunate. And so we couldn't just let the browser take over entirely once once support came in more, because then we had to also support Flash. So as you can see, it's kind of this this. Crazy game of give and take that, like, I don't know if we ever totally solved, but it feels like we're in a good place now, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to Gary Katsevman from uh, the VideoJS team and Owen. Between the two of them, I, I think they put in a lot of work, especially in the last like eight months, really solidifying VTT support, moving to VTTJS, the awesome open source project from Mozilla, which is, I think, if I recall correctly, the captions engine in Firefox itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything I'm missing there on like the like because that's that's a really common one. Less so now in approximately three months, four months when Chrome kills Flash entirely from the face of the earth. But uh, yeah, is there anything else I'm missing there on like the different? Because that's that's also like a like a platform thing, not just Flash versus HTML5. Yeah, honestly, I can't speak too much to the Flash specifics around captions because we always took the approach of just overlaying HTML on top of a Flash player. So there may be other complexities to Flash itself, but I think everybody's kind of moving forward from that that side of things. Is that what you're seeing too as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things with Flash was the accessibility barriers that people experienced around it. And trying to address those, it's not that they couldn't be addressed, they just didn't seem to be Consistently made available. So, yeah, there were a lot of barriers, a lot of people who couldn't play online video that was Flash based. And this, um, like this, this kind of world of like Flash versus HTML5, like uh, VideoJS in particular, not to like toot our own horn too hard here, but the thing that we got around a lot of these differences between Flash and HTML5 was because we had the same interface. So, Mm -hmm. things like Key accessibility, so like tab order, you know, whether or not we would use divs versus buttons. And we ended up using divs because it made some things easier, but then we had to add all this crazy ARIA syntax everywhere. And ARIA syntax, if you're not familiar, is tooling that allows you to make elements act like other elements so a screen reader can appropriately interact. Is that is that the right way of describing that, Owen? Yeah, it, it identifies them out to a screen reader in a particular way. It doesn't necessarily change how they act. But it identifies them out to a screen reader so that screen reader understands they're more than just a group of divs. Got it. And that's something that, that actually really surprised me the first time I did it was actually trying to view your own stuff in a screen reader. It's it's something you kind of never think about. Mm-hmm. But it's it was a fascinating experience for me the first time around when you know even just picking like personal website projects, sticking in a screen reader and realizing. It, it totally doesn't work if you can't see the content. I'd really <laughs> encourage people to even try that. Right. And even without a screen reader, just to turn the CSS off mm. will often give them the first idea of that of like, oh, this is just a 
several lines of text <laughs> and a line that says pause and a line that says stop. Yeah, and so this, you know, and, and the divs versus button things transitions nicely into like focus styles. Like this is a really common thing that we see people that appreciate good design frequently just turn off the focus styles because it's this big ugly gradient border thing around your elements and so people just immediately kind of focus down none right. uh, or focus none. And I feel like that's started to get less common because there's been a ton of articles written about how you should never do this because it just ruins the accessibility and it's such an easy piece of accessibility to not kill. Um, <laughs> right. It's just an extra thing you have to take from a design perspective, but like implementation-wise, right? Like that's not that bad. <laughs> no. And and I wish I, I think there is a way to actually turn off the mouse pointer with an HTML element, mm -hmm. I feel like we should do that a little bit more, is to just have certain elements that turn off the mouse pointer, because that's the equivalent turning <laughs> off the visual focus, is just turn off the mouse pointer and try and click a button. I don't know where it is. And you know, we, we, can, we can talk about this more, I think, as we go into kind of what the accessibility rules are, but when we, we start talking about changing, changing the content itself, so there's, there's things like audio descriptions that we've, where instead of just a text track, it'll actually like describe what's going on in the video. Well, I guess a text track wouldn't make any sense from what an audio description does. If you can't read the text track, you get probably... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> there's some discussion around that. Oh, really? There's some discussion about having a text track which is then available to the screen reader. Oh, mm. right. Since the person's going to have a screen reader anyway, can the screen reader read out a text track? The timing of it gets very difficult. So audio descriptions in particular, this kind of goes into like when we talk about changing content for a disability. So if you have content that's specifically meant for disabilities where you'll have larger pauses or like larger, you'll you'll hold off on going to a cutscene so you have more time to do audio description. This is just to call it out one more time. Another great thing that you would probably benefit from watching Owen's talk. He he shows two videos side by side, one of which where there's audio descriptions added and the the content itself is actually different. Like you see a person walking down the street for five seconds longer because it gives a little bit more time to describe what's going on in the video rather than trying to kind of like just pause the video and shove more content in, or have somebody speak really, really quickly over the content itself. So, but like changing the content itself has its own rat's nest of troubles that come from there, right? Like if you have an hour-long piece of content and then you pause things automatically to finish your screen reading, what does that do to your actual content length? Is is your content length now like what does your player show? Is it right. so things like that are, are interesting troubles that you wouldn't necessarily think of unless you're actually implementing it. Right, right, and and we've kind of skipped over or out to the the more complicated side of audio description. Just to be clear, what the basic is that the idea is to allow blind people to enjoy a video when and to to get the full content from a video without being able to see it. And it isn't just blind people; it can be low vision people, or it could be somebody who is unable to pay attention or watching a video on their watch. It's us in twenty years. It's us in twenty years. <laughs> going, uh huh. I mean, listen, there was a guy, uh, a baseball commentator who just retired yesterday, right? He's just this incredible, and I don't know his name because I don't follow that sport. <laughs> Is it like rounders? <laughs> Is it like cricket? I don't know. Um, but you, you take these people who are these incredible radio announcers who knew how to tell a story, and then there are movie producers who know how to tell an incredible story visually, but the two don't have to be exclusive. Hmm. Um, and that idea that you can have an audio track that parallels a video that conveys the content, 
in the same way you can have a sports game and have somebody commentating all through it and knowing when to be quiet and let people hear the roar of the crowd. Hmm. Um, hmm. And, and so then, Matt, what you're talking about is those situations where there isn't enough space, when the production doesn't allow for putting in description in the available time, and what do you do about that? And that's when you get into that idea of a longer edit or pausing the content. So moving on to like milestones here around like mm-hmm. legal milestones involving accessibility, particularly as it relates to web video. So we've got mm-hmm. the SEC ruling. This was the one that I was the most familiar with coming into WebVTT and captions was the SEC ruling that anything that was broadcast over traditional mediums with captions also need to be made online with captions. Mm-hmm. Did I butcher that too bad, or is that no, actually what that ruling yeah, was? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, that's part of. CVAA, the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. Thanks, God, they shortened that one. Um, (laughs) Which was, right, a requirement that if there are captions when you broadcast something, when you then take it online, those captions have to go with it. There's not really an excuse to say, well, it's a little hard to carry them over. You've already got them. Come on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You just need Phil's translation programs. (laughs) All five of them, right? Phil? For sale now. (laughs) Just pick one off the shelf. Right, right. (laughs) Might be a little dusty, but just dust it off and feed your content through. And I think that was the first round of it. And some of that was precipitated by the idea that when there was the switch to digital television, there were FCC requirements before that, that analog TVs, anything over 13 inches, had to have captions. People switched over to digital TV, and the captions were still being broadcast, but there was a converter box, and there were, it wasn't clear what handled the captions or how they got passed, and so there were situations where the captions were getting lost. Hmm. And so this was a, hey, we, we need to have standards in place and requirements, regulations that specify, if you've got them, they've got to be carried. Interesting. I wonder. I wonder what the effect of that was as we started to move forward into more like IPTV mm-hmm. um, scenarios. Because I think with the X1 that I've got now, it's all IPTV. I don't think I do any traditional broadcast. And in fact, wasn't mm. there a recent ruling where it's eh, whatever? Anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. The uh, you're still consuming a transport stream with subtitles, pits in it, right? Like even though it's IPTV, it's not really fundamentally changing the delivery technology. Right. My thought there was I wonder if that's going to change more, you know, as that progresses like. And I think that's where it's got complicated because the FCC has authority over broadcast TV, but the question was whether it had authority over IPTV. Well, I can say from the video jazz perspective, we saw a huge influx of requests around accessibility after after this point, right? Like before yeah. that, it was always unfortunately kind of a, a secondary priority for the project because, you know, in an open source project you tend to prioritize things based on, you know, the number of people who are screaming about a problem, the number of people who need a feature. So just looking at like browser usage and, and things like that. And so accessibility, unfortunately, kind of never bubbled to the top of, of either of those things. Right. But when this legal ruling came out, that was a, a huge uh, push for, I think, every player out there to start actually paying specific attention to these things and beefing up their support for accessibility. So that was really cool to see. Right. I mean, and, and that's the reason that that kind of legislation has to go through. Unfortunately, accessibility mm. doesn't bubble to the top. Mm-hmm. It's rarely a large user group. And it's a shame because there's an often cited statistic that um, the largest user of captions is sports bars and airports. 
<laughs> it's not people with disabilities, that it's not the deaf people turning it on. It's that as soon as you mandate that it has to be in every TV, people find out how useful it is. Huh. Right? It, it's interesting for me in particular, you know, I I watch overwhelmingly everything I watch on Netflix with the subtitles turned on, not because I need them, but my girlfriend finds it easier to to read English and kind of hearing it a lot of the times if there's accents or things like that. And I think what that often highlights to you when you are a native speaker of a language and then you watch the subtitles, how how bad a lot of the, the situations can be, how how often you find subtitles where they're lazily subbed or, well, it doesn't quite fit, uh, just stuff it in, maybe we lose some of the meaning of it, you know, and, and that inevitably happens. And it really definitely isn't a case that, you know, the, the primary use is for people with, with hearing issues anymore. Well, this feels like a good segue into actually giving a little background on what the UC Berkeley situation is, or looking back in time, what the MIT Harvard situations were. So if you if you haven't been following along, if somehow you missed this on Facebook and Twitter, uh, what happened was UC Berkeley ended up taking down a lot of free online course content because the federal courts said they needed to be following ADA with their online course content. And they basically said, this is free content that we provide online. We don't have the funding or the means to actually follow all of these rules, so we're just going to make it unavailable to everyone, um, was kind of the the gist. Is that roughly what, what you guys saw out of the situation? Right, it was a lawsuit brought, brought by the Department of Justice. It's their Office of Civil Rights, and it was specifically about ADA. It hasn't, as I understand it, gone to court yet. It was just a lawsuit that has been brought. The Department of Justice does these quite often, and often what they end up with is a consent decree, which is an agreement that the problems will be fixed without any finding of fault, so that all the finance and effort, all the money and effort, goes into fixing the problems. Hmm. The Department of Justice isn't looking to get some big settlement. Hmm. I shouldn't speak for them. It doesn't seem like they are. it doesn't seem like that's the point. And, and so when a lot of people get um, concerned about these lawsuits, I think they should be clear about that, that what the Department of Justice has done in pursuing ADA lawsuits is to say, you have a problem, you could have fixed it, you haven't. Now there's going to be consequences if you don't within the next certain amount of time. You know, listening listening to the like... They always say never read the comments, and, and that's almost always true. But <laughs> mm-hmm. there have been some interesting... Uh, it's been interesting to see like what people have taken away from this ruling, right? Like, you know, half of the comments you see are people are like, well, "This makes total sense." Like, this is free online course content. Why would we shut down, like, shut out a, a meaningful portion of the population, especially with something that's paid for with public money? And then the other have people saying like, "Well, you've got hundreds of thousands of people that can be helped by this free online course content, but we're going to rip it out of their hands because of a few needy people." Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, that, I'm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Painting an evil character of the of the people that are against it, but like you know, if people say it reasonably, it doesn't sound that bad, right? Like, oh, you got millions of people that could access this, and you know, a few thousand, like, uh, like the ends don't justify the means. There, like, a lot of people are missing out on content just because of a very small number of people. It's like, you know, if you're not painting somebody as the bad guy, like, it it can sound more reasonable. So, right, one way I heard it like put is basically saying like. If you're standing at the top of stairs giving out free money, like should you be required to build a, a wheelchair ramp or stop giving away the free money? <laughs> like, 
Where did you find that one? Yeah. It's it's Hacker News, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Also, where are these stairs? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I guess I guess we useful to like actually talk about what what is the the root of this like this hubbub? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are the specific challenges for Berkeley that they've mentioned, and what's the reasoning behind them saying it's kind of too expensive for them to move on? So, the first thing that I saw mentioned was sorry in the in the complaint. The first thing mentioned was many of the videos do not have captions. Mm-hmm. So, at first blush, like that one feels pretty reasonable, except for number four was talking about some of the videos that. Had automatically generated captions were inaccurate and incomplete. So mm-hmm. it feels like you've got an instance where some videos had no captions, and the videos that did have captions were probably machine generated. I know how good my text to speech transcription on my Google Voice uh, <laughs> yeah. voicemails is. I don't know what they could possibly be talking about there about uh, inaccurate. But <laughs> yeah, so I guess, let's let's start there um, mm-hmm. with with captioning. So clearly, machine generated just isn't quite there yet. Is there a mix? Like in your work, what have you seen there in terms of like, is that prohibitively expensive? I assume you're gonna have to have a human get involved in some way. Right. I mean, there are a number of different ways to generate captions. You can do them manually, but there are a lot of caption providers out there, companies where you can outsource that work and have them do it. And they follow FCC guidelines, which require a certain level of accuracy. And not just accuracy of the words, but accuracy of timing, correct placement accuracy and punctuation, those kind of things. There's a broad definition of what accuracy is. We've seen instances of clients using automatically generated captions where they were so wrong (laughs) that in one case it used a word that we didn't think that client wanted on their videos. (laughs) (laughs) And in another case, it took us a while to work out that the platform had misrecognized what language the subtitles were in, or the audio was in. It had auto-captioned them in Dutch, even though they were spoken in English, and then auto-translated them into English. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Um, you can imagine that was a little far from, from ideal. <laughs> so, so, I mean, what you come to, and a lot of people, I mean, this is the, the what's the cost, what's, the, what's good enough. You've got to have some line, right? Because otherwise you have no line at all. Mm-hmm. You've got to have something of this is what's required from a publicly funded university providing educational content, and a university that's well respected for its involvement with people with disabilities. Berkeley as a city and also as a university has had such a tie to the disability community for such a long time that the idea of not catering to those people seems disappointing. Mm-hmm. Just just out of interest, do you have like a finger in the air thought on how much money we're talking about here like like what's the cost say i go out there and get a compliant subtitler company to do an hour of content pretty simple english spoken language not complex stuff like what what's the actual feel of how much that costs i knew you'd ask that question and i know i don't have a specific <laughs> answer on that one so Damn. um i can point you to the right people who can answer that you know we don't propose any one particular subtitling company but there are a number of very reputable ones out there and they can give you an idea. It, the thing is, it's not as simple as it being a straight minute by minute. Yeah, of course not. There's, you know, there's all the overhead. Is it a, is it five hours of two minute videos or is it five mm-hmm. hours of two hour videos? And I think the bottom line there is it does cost more money. It right? does like, cost there's money. There's nothing free out right. there for right. you, right? Right. And so if you didn't plan to have that expense, like it's it's all additional, right? 
So the caption side of things feels pretty straightforward to me, right? Like captions, it's content. It should be pretty easy just to ship that off to somebody and have them do text to speech. We've literally been doing this for the entire time that digital content has been available. Uh, so the the ones that I think might feel a little bit more complex are many videos lack quote an alternative way to access images or visual information. So this is charts, uh, graphs, animations, URLs, and slides. And many documents quote associated with online course were inaccessible to individuals with vision disabilities who use screen readers because the document was not formatted properly. So those two feel related to me, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not even sure. Like if I have a graph, how do I make that graph more accessible? Right. And the thing is, um, I think a lot of people who've done website development who have the first inkling around accessibility understand that any image needs an alternate text description. Mm-hmm. You guys are nodding your head. I mean, this is that's like the basic point mm-hmm. of accessibility. If you have an image, and it used to be that if you had a slow connection, it wouldn't even download the images, right? Mm-hmm. And it would just have the little text description. Mm-hmm. The image is there to convey a piece of information. And as you start thinking about it this way, well, the text can convey that. Hmm. And I would say that in most cases, the image is there to back up that description. In fact, if I put together a PowerPoint slide, I hope that that slide only backs up what I'm saying. Hmm. Whether I'm fully describing what's on the slide, here's a line graph that goes from seven to five to seven, or whether I'm saying, the numbers bear out that this is more popular. The information should be there to back up what's happening in the speech, hmm. what you're talking about. I mean, there's a lot of very good educators out there that are making good use of explaining things and making sure that that information's coming across. But we've all seen lecturers who'll just throw up a slide and not describe it. And at that point, you're thinking, well, why didn't I just get the notes? Why did mm. I even come? <laughs> so for educational content, Good teachers should be doing that already. Mm. They're already describing what's in there. And so that's why those things are being flagged, is when when it's not fully described. And then you're talking about that post-production um, issue of adding description, which is more time-consuming than creating captions, which is more complicated. Um, but it's really about pushing it further up the production line, production chain. So really, it's just be better teachers, is what you're saying. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. Anybody from Berkeley that heard that, I was just kidding. I'm sure you're all very wonderful, right? So yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about what this means, like for the world at large. Like, so UC Berkeley, as as we've already talked about, isn't the only one that's kind of run into this. Again, we had MIT and Harvard do this last year. I'm sure those are not the only people that are putting out free content that maybe aren't captioning them the way they, the way that ADA would. Uh, say they should. So, yeah, I mean, how how would you say this is going to affect universities and like putting content out? Do you do you see more people going the? I, I, you know, to be clear, I don't think Berkeley's going to leave this stuff offline. I don't think they're just going to be like, no, fine, and take their ball and go home. Like, I don't think that's their intent at all here. I have to assume that there was like a, a knee jerk reaction to the federal government getting involved and then like pulling back so that they could survey the landscape and then. Coming back in with a solution. So, like, I have to assume that this stuff isn't just getting ripped out of every course content online. But, like, is that is that the impression you get? Like, what do you see this doing to other other universities and their course content? Well, yes, I think the initial reaction from Berkeley in terms of saying they're just going to pull their content is a little surprising, but actually not if you look at the long history of accessibility. That. For many years, advocates for accessibility have pushed for accessibility to be included in from the get-go. 
in the production process, in mm. the construction of websites, in the construction of content. And organizations have pushed back and said it's too expensive. And then it gets pushed further down the line. You're retrofitting accessibility, like putting a ramp to a building that already exists, and it's much more expensive. And lawsuits come and people throw their hands up and say, this is way too expensive. And that's unfortunate. When these organizations have often been approached in advance to say, start thinking about it in advance. So I think I was preparing for my joke too early and like kind of missed out on the uh, <laughs> missed out on some of the the original meaning there. But I think that clicked a little bit better. So what you're saying is teaching the course content in person as if you had those same people with disabilities already sitting in the room with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way, when you're actually preparing that content, there isn't as much additional work when it comes to actually providing it online. Right. So I wonder. I'd be interested to see what that is. What the difference is for content that does have. Students in the class that are already like that, like what the what the disparity in cost there is between making that content accessible versus like seeing the kid with obviously low vision in the front of the class. Like, what, how do you change the way you teach to accommodate for them? Like, right. I, I actually had a this when I was in university. One of my one of my friends, a very short sighted guy. Um, that came out wrong. Hang on. One of my friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my friends uh, has some eyesight issues, and one of the ways the university helped him was that they actually gave him a, a laptop with a camera with a, a big zoom lens attached to it. So <laughs> this is 100 percent true, and I'm not going to name my university. It's pretty easy to find out, though. But yeah, they they would give him a camera with a zoom lens for for lecturers where they hadn't prepared content or for example where they were doing say uh, programming live in the lecture you know places where you're not going to be able to preemptively prepare it they yeah just gave him a, a camera and said well zoom in on the screen and that's what you're going to get interesting so mm-hmm. I, I you know i'd say that a lot of these same learnings probably translate to other things such as you know edX for example like UC Berkeley had their content on edX, so I assume that they just kind of flow with whatever the universities are doing. But mm-hmm. things like uh, Udacity, Khan Academy, Coursera, like I have to assume that, like, because this stuff's already being prepared for consumption by especially paid content, like it feels like they would kind of already be incentivized to make sure that they had a, as big of audience as possible. So, right, is that true? To, like, how would how well would you say that? Accessibility has proliferated across all of the different websites, as opposed to just in like the public institutions that are being required to support it. It, it really depends. I mean, some mm-hmm. organizations are very forward-thinking and recognize that that's necessary. Some of them know that they have a, a policy as an organization, as a university, as a um, nonprofit, that they will be accessible, and many don't. And so they do put themselves at this risk of of legal action. Which is always going to be much more expensive. So, if it, if it's paid content, mm-hmm. is the same rule apply? Are you open to being sued if it's paid content? Paid content in terms of say, I, I pay for a course on one of these websites. Am mm-hmm. I entitled to a a accessible copy of that content? Right. So, one of the things that uh, Berkeley highlighted in their response to this lawsuit was only about free online material. Mm-hmm. The department's findings, I'm reading a direct quote here from Department of Justice. The department's findings do not implicate the accessibility of educational opportunities provided to our enrolled students. 
So what they're saying is Berkeley has already done a fantastic job of making their enrolled students, making their content for their enrolled students accessible. And they've done that because those are the people paying. And perhaps they thought that by releasing free video, um, they weren't expected to be as compliant. Mm. But yeah, absolutely, for the paid content, they are doing it and they they are required to make that accessible. This all kind of loops back into the whole, and now the huge amount of people who now don't get the content at all, right? And that's where it becomes a problem. Mm. Right, and that's, you know, as I, as I was saying, that uh, we've seen this a lot over the years in accessibility, where the, the cost of it gets kicked down the road and becomes, and just snowballs. It's kind of like uh, technical debt. It's, it's accessibility yeah. debt, but it just <laughs> keeps building up and building up, and then you get hit with a lawsuit, and guess what? This is going to be expensive. And, and it's not uncommon that in situations like this, organizations have turned around and said the cost is prohibitive. It is possible that Berkeley is putting that out so that they can then go back to the Department of Justice and negotiate and say, either can we make this less of a requirement, mm. maybe uh, only for mm. certain content, or give us a longer timeline so that we can spread the cost over multiple years. That's something we see sometimes. That a settlement agrees a longer time scale. Right. I will say that, like, from my perspective, it feels like a good thing that they actually took it down and made kind of that statement. Mm-hmm. Just from like seeing what what you're talking about, like the history of ADA and everything, like it's never going to become something that everybody does until like drastic things happen around accessibility right until right. it's actually not accessible and and the more people continue to run into things like this the more we are going to develop the technology that they need because they're going to be demanding it right the more that we're going to be thinking about these things ahead of time when we're producing the video but without like significant events like this it's not going to come to our for- to the forefront of the conversation right? exactly yeah no that's how how it's a good thing from the accessibility field that it does push up its priority and get people thinking about it earlier. Yeah, I have a uh, one question around it. when it comes to international audience because when we're when we're talking about web video, we're not just talking about the U.S. and the U.S. regulations, but we're talking about you know accessibility for everyone around the world. Mm-hmm. Is the U.S. ahead or behind when it comes to accessibility of web video? As far as web video goes, I don't know. I think certainly the U.K. is ahead. And I'm sure Phil can speak to that. <laughs> in terms of general web accessibility, a number of countries, uh, Australia, Canada, are somewhat ahead of the US. I don't mm. know about video specifically, but I think it's probably uh, other countries are ahead. Mm. One thing of note is that uh, a regulation in Canada, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, AODA, which actually specifically delayed the requirements for audio description and captioning of live content by an extra four years Hmm. from any other requirement. And that's for government-produced websites and content, for industry-produced websites and content. They also look to go to WCAG AA, but leave out captioning of live content and description. Interesting. So that kind of recognizes that it has been an area that hasn't had a lot of focus and that there is cost involved with yeah, yeah, totally. Interesting. Interesting that that's on the live content in particular. Cause this actually came up as a pitch in uh, in the UK a while ago. It was proposed that all TV channels would have an enforced delay to improve the quality of live subtitling, 
and it it got completely thrown out. But I, you know, in terms of improving quality, it would have been a massive step forward. But no, people want their TV live. So as we move forward, I mean, like uh, what we're seeing is a lot more content with the on the UGC front. Um, you know, lots of open source projects where where people are focusing on accessibility. You know, we've we've already talked about like the open source side of things, but how do you see this affecting UGC? Um, I, in terms of UGC, there are a few projects that specifically demonstrate the possibilities of using user-generated content to make things more accessible. Amara is a website that allows people to contribute captions and subtitles to existing video, mm. like YouTube video. And one of the very cool examples they have is translating the State of the Union speech mm. almost immediately afterwards so that people across the world can view the State of the Union. There's some great examples of how you can crowdsource that kind of accessibility. Another project that I was involved with, based out of the Smith Kettlewell Research Institute here in San Francisco, was called You Describe. And it mm. was uh, one of the first reasons that I approached you guys mm-hmm. about VideoJS, and that is user generated audio description, where people can record their own description of a, a YouTube video and then share it with everybody else. And that's an incredible opportunity for educators, parents, people who regularly run up against the problems of accessibility for blind children, for blind relatives, to say, I can make this accessible for you. I already have to do that anyway. I have to sit down at home and just walk you through it because that's the only way that exists. And I can share that. So it's then just uh, the availability of platforms, the availability of online systems that'll support that distribution. Also from a UGC perspective, when does it become an issue? You know, we've got we've got millions of hours of, of YouTube videos going up every month. You know, when when does it become a requirement for PewDiePie? When does it become a requirement for that sort of thing to have any accessibility on their content? I mean, we like we said earlier, YouTube's attempts at auto captioning stuff generally is mediocre at best. When does it become a requirement for those content creators to actually start thinking about accessibility of their content? Right. I, and I don't know that that's necessarily an answered question at this point, but with all that's happening with CVAA impacting video that's originally broadcast on TV and then moved over to online, mm. I think it's coming. I mean, I think yeah. once platforms like YouTube put in the infrastructure to support it, then there's going to be a question of, well, why not? So yeah. there's this constant breaking down of the barriers. It's not. It doesn't take so much work to get any particular thing done. And things become more accessible. Yay! <laughs> I think that's a it's a great segue into uh, wrapping things up. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here, Owen, because I I've, I've seen Owen. He's he's spoken at the SF Video Technology Meetups. Um, he spoke at DMUX next year. Uh, or sorry, he's, <laughs> he spoke wow. at DMUX in the future. Uh, he spoke at DMUX last year, and at both times, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, the the conclusions um, of like why we should actually care about these things beyond just ticking boxes were pretty moving. So make us all cry here, Owen. Why should we care beyond just ticking? Boxes technically. Um, I, as I presented at the uh, video meetup, the, there's a number of reasons. There's really three reasons I think that motivate us to to do this. One is my boss said so. <laughs> right. The second one is that a, a lot of the people that are in in this field, a lot of you guys that I've had the opportunity to meet, are incredibly smart people who are 
it seems driven by addressing problems, fixing problems. And there's a lot of different ways that those problem-solving skills can be used to address social good. And this is one. I gave the example of a blind snowboarder. I have video of him, and if you watch that, you might be inspired to do something that isn't easy. Because that's what he was doing. Is the uh, is is video subtitled? <laughs> is it audio Thanks described? Thanks ruining the moment. Nice, <laughs> nice Phil. No, there's no speech in it. It's, it's purely audio. Um, but, but, I mean, yeah, the, the on-the-spot moment is look around. When you're out on the street, when you are in any setting, there are a lot of people around you who have a disability. Some of them are obvious and some of them aren't. And it's all too easy to think of them as them versus us. Mm-hmm. But if you talk to a person with a disability, get past that awkwardness of, you know, you're blind or you're, I don't know how to talk to somebody who's deaf. Because I struggle with talking to somebody who's deaf through a sign language interpreter. But once you get past that barrier and find out they're a person and that they know what struggle is and that they don't want to be some inspirational person, they just want to be a person, but maybe they want to sit down with their family and watch Orange is the New Black or Daredevil because it has an inspirational blind person in it, Watch Daredevil on Netflix, turn on the description that goes along with it, and close your eyes and just see how different an experience it is. And then imagine yourself on your iPhone 30 as a uh, 110-year-old person um, (laughs) wishing that you had an experience that was as equal as it was to when you were 30 years old and could actually see. Um, I actually, I mean, like, that's like a legitimate argument for all of this, right? Is like, as engineers that might not have any of these problems right now, we're all young. Like selfishly, we should be solving these problems for ourselves because uh, it's coming. Um, hearing, hearing, and vision loss is in each of each and every <laughs> one of our futures. But, what was that? Not, not so much if you don't look at your iPhone so much. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, Owen. Um, thanks to SSB Bark Group for letting you come uh, and, and talk to us. We really appreciate it. And and this is probably going to get released after Demux 2016, but hopefully that content is available shortly after the conference. So that's all we have for today. Thanks Thanks, again, Thanks, Owen. See you at Demux. That's all we have for today, but as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree, so please reach out on Twitter at Demuxed. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 